All right, we're going to get started. Before we meet Mary, though, I want to take a little bit of time to describe the New Testament landscape. Because we haven't talked much about what happened with the northern kingdom of Israel after their Assyrian exile in 722 BC. So God had not promised Israel, the northern kingdom, that they would have a short-term exile as he had promised Judah. So the ten northern tribes who had been carted off to Assyria they never had a second exodus where God brought them back to their land. And they are often called the lost tribes of Israel. And they have been lost to history, mostly lost to human record keeping, but of course they were never lost to God. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to find Anna the prophetess who is in the temple, and she is actually from the tribe of Asher. But God did not bring the northern kingdom back as a nation to their homeland but he had promised to restore and regather them through the king of glory. But here's what we do know about those northern tribes. So after Assyria invaded Israel and captured Samaria, which was their capital, 2 Kings 17 tells us that Assyria carried the Israelites away and then dispersed and settled them among the cities of the Medes. So this was common conquest practice. You conquer a king kingdom, you take the best and the brightest out of their land, um, and you do this both to prevent a future rebellion and to assimilate those people into your own kingdom, like think of Daniel here. So you take the best and the brightest, but you leave the poor behind, those people who don't really pose a threat, and you leave them behind so they can work the land. Well, the king of Assyria did this, but then he also brought other displaced people groups from his other conquests and moved those people into Samaria. So Samaria then was populated with poor Israelites and a blend of foreigners from other nations who, when they moved in, they brought their idols and their pagan practices into the land. And Israel, of course, had been expelled from their land because of idolatry. And now even more idols are being introduced into the land. And God didn't like it. So he actually sends lions in to plague the pagans. And the people rightly conclude, huh, the God of this land is angry that we aren't worshiping him. So they send a message back to the king of Assyria and tell them about their problem. And the king of Assyria locates a priest from among the exiles, and he sends that priest back to Samaria to teach the people how to worship the God of Israel. So the people begin to worship God in addition to all their other gods. 2 Kings 17.41 says this, So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images, and their children did likewise, and their children's children. So Samaria becomes a melting pot of people and religions. The foreign transplants intermarry with the Israelites who are left behind, and they begin to blend their religious practices. And their offspring are the people we call Samaritans. So 700 years later, when John the Baptist appears on the scene, the Samaritans are still around. They still have questionable religious practices, a blend of Judaism and paganism, and of course, they have questionable ancestry. They are half-bloods, if you will, and as such, faithful Judeans will have nothing to do with them. 
Faithful Jews don't want to pollute their religion or their land as the Samaritans have done because it seems that finally Judah has learned its lesson about idolatry. So in those long years of silence from God, Judah gave up idolatry. Enduring God's judgment in exile, it seems, finally drove the idolatry out of their hearts. And so at the beginning of Luke, what we find is that much of Judah appears to be worshiping God alone, and they are keeping his law. So on the surface, this generation of Jews appears very different from their ancestors of 400 years ago when the people were lax in obeying God's laws, where they freely intermarried with pagans. When they failed to keep up the temple rituals, they would bring lame animals for sacrifice, and they neglected the tithe. Remember, these people claimed from Malachi 3 that there was no profit in serving the Lord. Well, this generation thinks otherwise. They do not intermarry. They avoid Gentiles. They are careful to follow all the customs established by Moses in the wilderness, and they even tithe their herbs. They think, if we can keep all the laws of Moses, then God will return to us. If we can just obey, he'll finally send our king to restore our nation to greatness. He will subdue our enemies, Rome, and then take his throne in Jerusalem, and from there he will establish his earthwide eternal kingdom. So they tried. They try to be really, really good. They even add laws to the already impressive 600 laws that God instituted in the wilderness. So all those laws their ancestors couldn't keep, they now have made even more difficult. Outwardly, this looks like a very different people from 400 years ago, but inwardly, that same old enemy entwines itself around their hearts. That snake still deceives and enslaves many of them, and he is very much at work in the land when God sends Gabriel on a second mission to the town of Nazareth. So though we've had a hopeful beginning, beneath the, surface, beneath the surface here, sin is still multiplying. These people are no less sinful than their ancestors. Idolatry may not be the biggest problem anymore, but their careful rule following has bred hypocritical and self-righteous hearts in some, and in others, sinful despair and faithlessness. Things like hatred, rivalry, envy, greed are flourishing in the land. And it is into this landscape that God sends John, the promised Elijah-like prophet. And even now, at the time of our story, the Spirit of God fills him in the womb of his mother, who will give birth in about four months' time. As the first prophet, after 400 years of silence from God, John's ministry will be powerful and fruitful among some. But given Israel's history, do you think as a whole they're going to accept him as a prophet? Will they listen to God's words? What does the pattern suggest? But John is one of our heroes, just as there have always been heroes, people who believing, by, who believing God's words rather than the snake's lies change their spiritual paternity. And because of their faith, God removes them from the offspring of the snake and brings them into his own household and into the family of God.
We've seen lots of these heroes, men like Abel, who brought pleasing sacrifices to God, men like Noah, who listened to God and obeyed him, couples like Abraham and Sarah, women like Rahab, who wisely did not make herself an enemy of God, but blessed his people, women like Ruth, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and Malachi. So God's story has always been populated with these faithful men and women, our dear brothers and sisters whose lives, even now, still call out to us beyond the grave to follow their examples, to listen, to believe, and to wait in hope. Well, today's story adds another heroine to our long list of heroes. This time, the heroine is a very young Jewish woman who is anticipating her upcoming wedding. Let's turn to Luke 1, page 71 in your workbooks. Verse 26 reads this way. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So verse 26 right away gives us the time frame. It ties the account that is about to follow with the previous one, the one we studied last week. Today's story takes place after Elizabeth has conceived and after she comes out of her five-month hiding. This is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And at this time, God sends the angel Gabriel on another mission. This verse also establishes the setting of the new story. So in the previous account, Gabriel had been sent to God's temple in Jerusalem to speak to one of God's priests. And remember, his appearance there created quite a public stir, and it caused the people to realize God had at last broken his silence by sending a message to one of their priests. But this second announcement will be private rather than public. The setting is several miles north of Jerusalem in the small agricultural village called Nazareth, which is in the Galilean region, so named because it just encompasses the Sea of Galilee. So the setting is a stark contrast to the setting of the previous story. This is a city nobody ever talked about in the Old Testament. And compared to the busy historical and religious center of Jerusalem, Nazareth is an unimportant rural village. During this time, the people actually spoke disparagingly of Nazareth. You'll remember Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So we see the repetition of another pattern that we've seen throughout the story here. It's this pattern of humble beginnings. But also, if you remember how the prophecy about the Messiah of Isaiah 9 began, you'll recognize that name Galilee. So here's how Isaiah 9 opens. But in latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. So with both the mention of Gabriel, okay, we know God reserves Gabriel for really important missions, and now with the mention of Galilee, we should suspect right away that this has... This mission has something to do with the arrival of the Son promised in Isaiah 9. But let's see. Let's see if that's the case. Verse 27, God sends Gabriel to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So this verse describes the recipient of God's message. And we get three pieces of information about her. First, she is a virgin. Now that is an interesting way to introduce somebody, right? 
first thing we know about her. But it is an important piece of information. First, it tells us that this is likely a young woman and she is chaste. So she has kept God's laws about sexual purity in her youth. So we have, again, another faithful Israelite here at the beginning of our story. Two, we learn she is also betrothed. So according to Daryl Bach, this word betrothed refers to the second stage of a two-stage marriage process. And during this second stage of betrothal, she is legally Joseph's wife, although the marriage ceremony hasn't taken place and the marriage has not been consummated. So Mary is preparing for her wedding ceremony here. And Luke does not record her age, but these betrothals could happen as early as the age of 12. So again, this is likely a very young woman. Okay, but here is something else we learn about her. She is betrothed to a man named Joseph, who, and this is really important, he is of the house of David. So right away, that statement should put you on high alert. Gabriel is going to Galilee to visit a young woman who is going to marry a son of David. So we recognize, first, God has been so faithful. He has been faithful through all his years of silence. He has preserved David's line. Here it is, alive and well. And now, whatever children come from Joseph's marriage will be a part of King David's lineage. And then third and finally, we get this woman's name. This is, of course, Mary. Well, let's see what Gabriel has to say to Mary. In verse 28, he comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this greeting is a contrast to Zechariah's experience, right? Zechariah just kind of walked into the holy place, and he sees, surprise, this angel standing next to the golden altar of incense, and he panics, right? Well, Zechariah announces his presence to Mary. He probably knows how, what effect he will have on her, so he reassures her with this friendly greeting. Um, but I also think Gabriel greets Mary this way because he is excited to meet her. But for now, we'll get back to that. But for now, just note that Gabriel's greeting reveals that Mary has been set apart by God to receive his special grace and favor. Well, in verse 29, her response is predictable. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So like Zechariah was troubled, Mary is now troubled and greatly troubled. And not just by the presence of the angel, that was troubling enough, but his greeting is immensely puzzling. God favors me? He's with me? What, what, what does this mean? So she's probably in a state of shock, as we all would be. And you know how your mind kind of races in a really disordered way when you're in a state of shock? Well, this, Gabriel recognizes her fear and her anxiety here. And in verse 30, he reiterates that he is here to bless her. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So here, Gabriel gives Mary a chance to recover, reminding that he's here because God has found favor with her. And then he just launches into his announcement, verses 31 through 33. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So with this announcement, we unmistakably recognize that God is sending his king of glory as a baby to this young Jewish woman in an unheard of village in an obscure part of the Roman Empire. This Mary is the first to hear of his coming arrival because she will be his mom. Now, if Mary thought Gabriel's greeting was troubling, can you imagine how her mind is reeling now? But before we move on to her response, let's comb through this birth announcement because it is full of Old Testament allusions to many of the prophecies we've already studied so far. And it includes one really exciting piece of new information. So first, in verse 31, she's told she will conceive and bear a son. And we know from the most ancient of prophecies that we have been expecting a woman to conceive and bear a son a son who will crush the snake and restore all the blessings of Eden. And then with additional prophecies, we kind of pivoted to search for that child to be born from Abraham's offspring, and then Judah's offspring, and now David's line. And then we saw in Isaiah 9 and Micah 5, they both reminded us once more that we are indeed looking for the birth of a baby boy. So we have known all along that the king of glory will arrive in the very normal way of childbirth. And now we finally get to meet the one who will give birth to him. But then, too, the announcement gives us a detail we've not yet heard. A name! In verse 31, the first human ears to hear and then speak his name is this young woman who will be his mother. Jesus, that's his name. Jesus is the name of the great king of glory. And like his origin, even his name is humble. Jesus is the Greek form for Joshua. It simply means Yahweh saves. And it was an ordinary name in Israel. But his name, like the names of so many prophets before him, reflects his mission. He is coming in God's name to bring salvation first to Israel and then to every family of the earth. Well, like in John's birth announcement, after giving the name, Gabriel then explains his future ministry. John, John would be great before the Lord, we found in verse 15. Jesus will simply be great, verse 32, greater even than John. And this word recalls the promise of greatness to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and to David in 2 Samuel 7, 9. So this baby is the promised offspring of Abraham and the promised heir of David who will surpass his fathers in greatness. And not only will he be great, he will have a title reflecting his greatness. He will be called the Son of the Most High. We see that in verse 32. So you'll remember Melchizedek was called a priest of God Most High. And that designation, Most High, that designation for God became a favorite one in Israel. And it's often what they call God in their Psalter. So this is equivalent to calling this baby the Son of God. 
So here, we can't help but remember God's promise to be a father to David's son and heir. Listen again to the words of 2 Samuel 7:14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And we're reminded of Psalm 2, when God spoke to the Messiah, saying, You are my son. Okay, though we've already alluded to the Davidic connection with those words great and now son, Verse 32 clearly states the connection, saying that God will give Jesus the throne of his father, David. And then in verse 33, Gabriel speaks of this baby's eternal kingdom and its multiplication. So we're again reminded of Old Testament prophecies. 2 Samuel 7.13 says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And Isaiah 9.7 speaks of the increase of his government. There will be no end. He will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, this is it. Gabriel, without a doubt, is announcing the coming birth of the king of glory. Well, even as Mary kind of struggles to regain her composure and understand Gabriel's message, she hears all these echoes of the Old Testament prophecies that she has learned in her youth. She knows exactly what Gabriel is saying. She knows. And what she asks next reveals that she understands. She doesn't appear to doubt the announcement. She doesn't ask for a sign like Zechariah did, but she does puzzle over how this will take place given a particular obstacle. So in verse 34, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now a couple things Mary is assuming already with this question. She knows she is about to be married and that her virgin state won't last forever. So this question shows that she is assuming there's going to be an immediate fulfillment of this promise. She will conceive before her, vet, before her wedding while she is still a virgin. But two, she probably assumes that God will work out the details of her marriage so that Joseph will accept this baby as his own. Otherwise, how could he be called the son of David? The line of descent is always recorded through the father. So even if Mary is related to David, as many scholars believe she is, her son's genealogy will not be recorded through her, so he has to be, he has to be related to David through the father. Now, there has been possibly been a precedent set for a virgin birth back in Isaiah 7. But even if that is the case, virginity does seem more of an insurmountable obstacle to having a baby than even old age or barrenness. So this really is an innocent question about mechanics. How will this work? And how does the angel respond? So she has not asked for a sign like Zechariah and Gabriel gently answers her question. Look at verse 35. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So six pretty brief, five brief observations and one longer one here. So first, this will be no ordinary conception. It will be asexual. 
so the child can be born from a virgin. So that phrase, the Spirit will come upon you, is just consistent with how the Old Testament spoke about the empowering of prophets to do their work. So Mary, too, will experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit, at least at the conception of Jesus, but likely beyond that as well. She is going to need his empowerment to fulfill her calling as mother to our Lord. That phrase, power of the Most High, will overshadow you. So let's talk about that word, overshadow. This just recaptures the way God dwelled with Israel in the wilderness. So he would dwell with them in a cloud that just overshadowed them by day. So this word tells us that like God was with Israel, he will be with Mary. He will personally accomplish his promise of sending a human son to crush the snake and restore the Eden blessings. These words, of course, describe what we call the incarnation, where the pre-existent second person of the triune God becomes human, and where God the Father implants his fully human life into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And we should note here that all three persons of the Godhead are active at this moment of conception. Fourth, verse 35 also reiterates that the child will be called the Son of God. And this sonship language doesn't yet teach Israel about the divinity of this baby, because the Davidic kings have been called God's son. God has called Israel his son. Luke, in just two chapters, will call Adam the son of God in chapter 3. So this wording actually identifies Jesus with Adam. It identifies Jesus with Israel. And it, of course, identifies him with the Davidic king, not yet necessarily as an equal with God. But why is he called holy? That word there uh, hints at a theological truth that we've seen illustrated in the Old Testament story, but it's a truth that hasn't yet been fully articulated and won't be until Jesus dies and rises again. And then the New Testament authors will help us understand. But here's the truth. Adam's sin nature, or we call it the Adamic sin nature, that is passed down to each person through the Father. So like I said, we've seen this principle illustrated in the Old Testament through genealogies because they are always recorded through the father because the father is the head of the family as Adam, the first human, was the head of the entire human family, the whole human race. And as head of the human family, when Adam sinned, he just plunged his whole family into rebellion against God. All Adam's children, just like Adam, now rebel against God because we now have what we call a sin nature. And this is exactly what we've seen illustrated right out of the garden with the birth of Cain and with the birth of every child since. All Adam's children have inherited his sin nature. That's what the Old Testament story illustrates, and that is what the New Testament teaches. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man. Now, because we are all born sinful like our father Adam, we are all counted as the snake's offspring. We are born opposed to God, 
and opposed to his word. It's this truth that David laments in his psalm of confession when he writes, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's not commenting on his mother's sexual impropriety. What he's saying is that the natural process of human replication can only produce sinners. That is why he asked God to remake his heart, to create a clean heart in him. He knows we are born with diseased hearts. He knows this because he's been paying attention to the story. There is no hope for Adam's line to produce righteous offspring. No son or daughter of Adam could ever be called holy. And this truth is why Israel couldn't obey and why they could never keep their Eden reboots. Because sin, like a constricting snake, has wrapped itself around the human heart, choking out all spiritual life. We are spiritually dead. We are born skeptics of God. We are naturally suspicious of his words. We are inclined to believe lies, and we are desperate to shake off God's righteous laws and live according to whatever our sinful nature tells us is good. In this wayward bent to our hearts, our sin marks us as the snake's offspring, and consequently, as the objects of God's curse. Unless we turn from the lies, hear God's words, and believe them. And Romans 5.12 confirms all this saying, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So we've seen this principle of death for sin illustrated throughout the Old Testament as well, right? Everybody has died because through Adam, they have all been born sinners. Now Eve, the mother of mankind, is not the head of the family. So her children and her children's sin are accounted for through the father. And by bypassing a sinful father, Jesus will not inherit a sinful father's nature. He will not be born with an enslaved heart or under the curse of death, as we all are. He will be completely human, but absolutely free from Adam's sin nature, and therefore, he can be called holy. Now, I want to address a paternity question that may have leaped into your minds. If Jesus isn't related to Joseph by birth, Does this mean he is not truly in David's line? So, a couple things to think about here. Many scholars for centuries have suggested and provided lines of evidence that Mary is indeed related to David. So it is quite possible that Jesus could descend from David on his mother's side. But even if these scholars are wrong about Mary's lineage, this baby can still legally inherit David's throne. So God already has a precedent set in his own law for a son to be recorded in a different line of descent than his biological fathers. So if a man died with no sons, this is going to sound very strange to our ears, if a man died with no sons, his widow would marry his brother. And you think, ew, but you know, this was a nice provision. (laughs) This was a provision for keeping the lines fruitful. So the widow would marry her deceased husband's brother, and their first son, the son of the brother and the widowed wife, would be accounted as the son of the deceased man, so that his line would not die out and it could continue to be fruitful. 
Well, similarly, God is happy for his son to be the so-called son of Joseph. And as the sequel evolves, we'll better understand God's heart for adoption. He powerfully redeems people from the snake's offspring and makes them his own children, giving them all the rights of the firstborn. He takes Gentiles and he grafts them into Abraham's offspring. So whether or not Jesus has a genetic connection to David through Mary, or if he's simply counted as David's heir through Joseph's adoption, this doesn't matter. Either way, in God's eyes, he is the rightful heir to David's throne. Okay, but back to our story. Mary has not asked for a sign like Zechariah, but Gabriel actually gives her one anyway. So look in verses 36 and 37. He says to her, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the narrative comes full circle with the mention of Elizabeth, whose pregnancy was alluded to at the beginning. God has another blessing prepared for Elizabeth. Not only will she give birth to the great prophet who heralds the coming of the king, she will discover she is actually related to the mother of her savior. Now we don't know the nature of their relationship, but they are connected just as the great Elijah-like prophet is connected to the greater king of glory. But how is this a sign for Mary? Well, if God can reverse barrenness to bring about his promises, he can easily overcome virginity. He has brought life to dead wombs. He has created life from nothing. Mary's purity is no obstacle to his purposes. It's, it is the purpose. Elizabeth's miracle is a sign to Mary that God can and will perform a miracle in her womb as well because nothing will be impossible with God. So Elizabeth's pregnancy, though, it's more than a sign. It's actually a provision, as we'll see next week. It is a blessing for both Mary and Elizabeth. God has looked on them both. He has given them both a high calling, although these callings will not be without pain and much suffering. But here in this prenatal stage, God forges a sweet connection between these two women and between their two baby boys. Well, unlike Zechariah, Mary is actually able to respond to Gabriel. And she does. In verse 38, she sweetly submits to God's will for her. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So if you didn't already like Mary, I hope your heart warms to her now. I mean, she is a child by today's standards. She has just encountered an angel from God's throne room with a most astonishing message, one with profound ramifications for her life. If and when people realize she is pregnant, she could be stoned for adultery. What will Joseph think? How is she going to explain this to him? Who should she tell? Well, she is in a small town, and word is bound to travel very quickly. But she puts all of that aside and sweetly surrenders, identifying herself as an obedient servant, willing to do whatever it is God asks of her. 
And once again, we see servant language. We've seen this throughout the story. Israel was to be God's servant. Samuel was God's servant. David was his servant. Jesus, of course, will be the ultimate servant. But Mary just throws herself into a long history of those God has chosen to be his servants. And she must know that the life of God's servants has never been easy. Although, of course, it will be eternally blessed. Well, as for Gabriel, he departs, and once more the scene just abruptly ends. But I have to tell you, he was and is every bit as interested in watching this story unfold as we are. He has been waiting and watching with all Israel for thousands of years for this very moment. Why do I say that? Well, remember the prophets who recorded all these promises from God and how they weren't granted the understanding we've been given? 1 Peter 1.12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So the, things they have so the things that have been announced to us through preachers of the good news, those things, according to 1 Peter 1.12, are things into which the angels long to look. The angels don't even know exactly how or when God will fulfill all of his promises to us humans. And they are as eager as we are to hear the stories and to see how God will fulfill them. So Gabriel happily went to Nazareth that day, knowing he was going to speak to the young woman who would give birth to and mother the Son of God. Okay, before we close, I want to draw your attention to one of God's storytelling methods. So the story, we, we've seen this all along, it has been unfolding in repeating patterns. And it would be well worth your effort to sit down and do your own reflections on the story and record all these repeating patterns we've seen. But today in this story, there's one particular repeating pattern I want to draw your attention to, and that is God's pattern of exalting the humble. So Nazareth was a humble town full of poor, humble people making a humble living. Joseph lives there, and he is a carpenter. And these humble roots recall Micah's prophecy that Israel's king will arise again out of humble people from a humble place. This is the pattern. Israel the nation began as a small family of shepherds and then slaves. And then God plucked David from the fields of Bethlehem and installed him on the throne of Jerusalem. So humility before exaltation. This is the pattern. And of course, Jesus' own life will follow this pattern, but it doesn't end with him because all those who will be exalted in salvation must first humble themselves in repentance. And in a minute, you can reflect on all the ways you've seen this pattern illustrated in the story and also in your own lives. Second, another recurring pattern we've seen throughout the story is this raging of enemies. We've had continual conflict and warfare. Just think of all the forces the snake has marshaled against the heroes of old and against Israel as a nation in the past to prevent the birth of the one he knows is coming to destroy him. What won't he do to avoid his curse? He will not spare any evil effort. 
imagine the spiritual opposition he will mount once this baby is born. In the past, he has lied about God. He has innervated evil kings to enslave God's people and slaughter their children to keep them from multiplying. He has propped up false gods to ensnare them into idolatry. He influenced Israel's enemies to be excessively cruel to them. I mean, Babylon dashed their babies against the rocks when they destroyed Jerusalem. What will he do when he knows that despite all his efforts, his destroyer has in fact been born? And even today, he rages against God and against his son. Our world is still full of conflict and warfare, and it's all because of that snake who told a lie. Eve believed it and disobeyed God. And then her husband willfully disobeyed God and plunged our entire race into rebellion against him. But God, our merciful and just God, our powerful and personal God, has a plan to crush that snake and to free his people from the snake's enslaving power and then finally and forever restore all that was lost in Eden. So one original Eden plus five Eden reboots, that equals six failed Edens. But now, with the birth of this virgin-conceived human baby boy and holy son of God named Jesus, we can have full confidence that the seventh and final Eden will not fail, even though all hell will rage against it. So it comes to this, all our hopes, all the hopes of the heroes of old are bound up in this tiny embryonic life housed in the womb of this young, unmarried Jewish girl named Mary. This, to this moment, is where all the prophecies of the Old Testament have brought us. Let's pray. Dear Father, what seems so fragile to us, this tiny little life in the womb of a young woman, when the snake and all of hell rages against it, it is not fragile. It is absolutely secure in your hands because your plan has never been in jeopardy. Not one of the snake's evil attempts has managed to fluster you even for a moment. So and if you can bring about this birth, then nothing is impossible with you. So give us eyes to see and faith to believe that just as you sent Jesus into the world and destroyed the power of sin and death, so also you will send him back in victory to gather all his people from the land of their sojournings and into your eternal kingdom where no curse or, nor or any snake will ever touch us again. In Jesus' name.